Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Anstan Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. Hi, Dr. Romer. How are you? Good. Good to see you again, Dr. Valente. Good to see you as well. Since our last episode, the Ackerman Center has been quite busy hosting a number of events, um, yeah. starting with the Juji event on August 30th. It has been a really busy couple of weeks. The whole return to campus, the beginning of our semester, and then the celebration of Juji's uh, of Juji's time at UTD and what it has meant to all of us. Um, and obviously in lots of ways as a way of acknowledging her retirement. Um, and it was a very meaningful event, I thought. There was really great participation and a lot of heartfelt enthusiasm that came out. Not big speeches, but, you know, like it should have been. Many things from the hearts, from board members, friends, students, faculty. Um, I think it worked really well. And it left her really, really happy and, and excited. Uh, I remember afterwards she must have had a calling list of people that she wanted to thank, and I was very uh, must have been one of the early ones. And she was like, oh, "This was this," and it's like her normal infectious, you know, enthusiasm. And I thought, "Ah, you're just there's no one like you," you know. Exactly, exactly. It was I think hard for anyone to keep a dry eye. I mean, it was just yeah. such an emotional, really wonderful event, and we had people calling in from all over the world as well. So That's that. Right. You know, her closest 100 friends or so. Uh, so it was really beautiful. And of course, you know, the question that is, what does her retirement mean to you and to the Ackerman Center? So that's a big question. And I think, you know, it's one of those, it, it's, it's you start walking in that a little bit. And as you do, you eventually might learn what that means. I, and then it occurring in the middle of this pandemic where we are not really at the office makes it even harder to, to um, to kind of get a sense of that. I mean, to me, you know, in lots of ways, Juji, um, from the from the moment that I arrived for my uh, job interview, and uh, shortly thereafter, I was at our house eating homemade bread. Um, everything about me and the Ackerman Center had always been about Juji, and not to have that any longer in that in that way, you know, it's I think impossible for us to to really gauge what that means for us. And I think also for the students, it's irreplaceable. I mean, they form very lasting and very personal and very emotional relationships with her. I mean, we're hoping that obviously once this pandemic is over, that she will be back in other ways and that we can also still obviously call upon her now to be around for talks and this and that. But it's not quite the same any longer. But I think uh, um, I'm... I've always been very mindful of the fact, I mean, not just thinking now about Juju's retirement, but about a number of retirements in our school now, that um, we inherited something that uh, is now in our hands that we have to kind of be mindful of, of, of trying to kind of keep this going. And, and I think that's particularly the sense that I have with Ackerman Center, where and this has been in the making for a long, long time. When Juju started teaching Holocaust classes in the 80s, now we are 2020. So 
Um, those that came before us had a lot of wisdom in the way they started putting this together. And I'm just thinking that hopefully we'll do a good job in keeping it going and not just simply maintaining it, but keep keep growing it. So that's, I think, the best way of how we can keep this Juju spirit in us alive if we just keep going at it, just like she has done over many, many years. Exactly. I think it's such a, you know, we have such a, an inspirational founding mother for the Ackerman Center that she has impacted the lives of so many thousands of students, so many, you know, hundreds of people that um, I'm sure that we all carry that desire to continue her mission just by virtue of us loving her and having been so touched by the way in which she taught us. And so it's really um, inspiring to see, you know, that we continue to do this work with the Ackerman Center. You know, just this last week, there was another event going on, a race workshop that dealt with anti-Semitism, you know, this kind of more contemporary global perspectives. And so, you know, we're reaching out into the world and continuing that mission, which I think is a really wonderful way to, to be living this moment that is very much challenging in, in many ways for, for all of us, um, but finding ways of, you know, keeping close to the topic and, and still finding meaning in this mission that we have. So, But I mean, just to, to give you a sense of where she is, um, so on Monday, the uh, one of the news stories in the, in the university news about the center uh, came out about our fifth chair. And I think it had the title, the fifth endowment, for first chair sets up the Ackerman Center now to become an elite institution. Now, Juji was ecstatic about it. There's not a person that I talked to who she didn't call to tell them about this article. So she is still very much there and our cheerleader and inspiration as she always has been. It's wonderful. Now, thinking about another woman who has left such a great impact in the world, if we could switch gears a little bit, um, as we all know, last Friday evening, as Jews around the world were getting ready to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the sad news broke that um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away. And, and so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about her and what her legacy will be or what she has meant for the world. You know, she has this incredible legacy of standing up for women, for the rights of women, for the rights of minorities, for speaking on behalf of those who um, could not speak for themselves. She was really, you know, I see her as really this defender for the defenseless. And so I wanted us to maybe visit a little bit about her history and how she spoke about the way in which her Jewish identity really impacted the way or guided. It was really the compass that guided her her life and her career. I'm glad that you're bringing this up. I think you, you want to bring us to one of our famous speeches at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, 2004. Yes. Um, yes, by all means. Let's have a listen. the good fortune to be a Jew born and raised in the USA. My father left Odessa, bound for the New World in 1909 at age 13. My mother was first in her large family to be born here in 1903, just a few months after her parents and older siblings landed in New York. What is the difference between a bookkeeper in New York's garment district and a Supreme Court Justice? Just one generation. My mother's life and mine 
bear witness. Where else but America could that happen? My heritage as a Jew and my occupation as a judge fit together symmetrically. The demand for justice runs through the entirety of Jewish history and Jewish tradition. I take pride in and draw strength from my heritage, as signs in my chambers attest, a large silver mezuzah on my doorpost, gift from the Shulamit School for Girls in Brooklyn, on three walls in artists' renditions of Hebrew letters, the command from Deuteronomy, Zedek, Zedek, Tierdorf, justice, justice shall you pursue. Those words are every present reminders of what judges must do that they may thrive. I was fortunate to be a child, a Jewish child, safely in America during the Holocaust. Our nation learned from Hitler's racism and in time embarked on a mission to end law-sanctioned discrimination in our own country. In the aftermath of World War II, in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, in the burgeoning women's rights movement of the 1970s, we the people expanded to include all of humankind to embrace all the people of this great nation. Our model, a pluribus unum of many one, signals our appreciation that we are the richer for the religious, ethnic, and racial diversity of our citizens. So these are really, really powerful lines. And in a way, you know, not too long ago, we did the series of, of podcasts on kind of living under the, the shadow of the Second World War. And in many ways, um, her life very much, if you were born in March 1933, this is, you know, a kind of variation of what otherwise in literature we, we can think about Midnight Children by Rushdie where you're born, born at such a historical moment that almost over-determines your, your future. And I think we have that very strong sense with her, how she talks about what that had meant for her to have been born um, at that particular moment and have been raised with that awareness um, of the Holocaust. And she also, in other interviews, has talked a great deal about how she has always found herself of living what she called in the shadow of the Second World War. And how she walked away, therefore, with this, you know, never again, and with this kind of urgency of seeking justice um, and of opposing um, any kind of things that defy our humanity and uh, and, and, and and our true meaning of, of, of us as a community. So I think there is really, you know, it's actually a nice way to think about Juji in the context of, of that legacy in that way. But we we are, you know, looking at two people who were quite literally formed, presumably, by the times that they were born in ways that they never had a chance, but that was almost given to them. But they that kind of forced or compelled them in, into particular directions, but also became then inspirational for many people thereafter. So. Um, you know, it's, I think, you know, we just talked about the uniqueness of Zhuzhi and, and then you think about, well, is there something very unique about, or something very different about that generation mm -hmm. that has been so keenly aware of the historical moments into which they were born 
and took very particular lessons from that um, in terms of their personal lives exactly. and what that meant. And that's, you know, in certain ways, very cl- clearly the case for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and obviously also very true for Zhuji. Exactly. I mean, both women are, are really forging the path in a time when there was really no space for them as women. And in, in the case of Ruth, you know, she talks about how she grew up seeing signs that said no Jews and no dogs. So this memory was still very much, you know, of course, she was born in the United States. She was, you know, quote unquote, safe. But that experience with anti-Semitism, I think, is something that was also very much a driving force, right, in this speech. Um, I find this uh, one of the paragraphs really interesting where she says, but today here in the Capitol, the lawmaking heart of our nation in close proximity to the Supreme Court, we remember in sorrow that Hitler's Europe, his Holocaust kingdom was not lawless. Indeed, it was a kingdom full of laws, laws deployed by highly educated people, teachers, lawyers and judges to facilitate oppression, slavery and mass murder. We convene to say never again, not only to Western history's most unjust regime, but also to a world in which good men and women abroad and even in the USA witness and knew of the Holocaust kingdoms, crimes against humanity, and let them happen. There's obviously quite a bit packed into this and in saying that in 2004 would have resonated in many ways. Uh, reading it again today resonates again in a very different way. And so I think it's it's very telling that those lines have been, you know, kind of uh, been pulled out now numerous times. And I think uh, there's, you know, something that maybe we have to go back to sometimes now and, and find those voices again that kind of remind us that w- when it comes to it, there is, um, there all of us are always involved, all of us in our various forms of being um, and of roles that we play. But there's not us never being not involved. None of us ever have that luxury of being just on the sidelines and looking at it, you know, at our screen or something like that. We are always and at every moment involved in our communities and our societies and our in our futures and that of 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 everyone else's. And so I think that's maybe an obligation, but also an opportunity. Exactly. And I think what you're bringing up is so important, especially in light of this very alarming study that was published last week by the Claims Conference that showed that we still have a long way to go um, in order to honor the memories of those who perish. You know, something that Ruth talks about in the speech is honoring the memory of those who perish and not letting it happen. And yet here we have 2020, um, a new study, a new study that was done for the first time ever in the 50 states of the United States showing or trying to gauge, you know, how much Holocaust knowledge do American millennials and Generation Z have about um, uh, about the events that happened during World War II? And the results are just shocking. Would you like to talk a little bit about this? Yeah, you know, the, yeah, you said it already. They're shocking. Um, you know, they're shocking in terms of details. So 48% of millennials and Gen Z could not name a single one of the more than 40,000 concentration camps. That's the average. There are some states that are worse. Mm-hmm. Ours, Texas being one of them, where the number for this is even higher. Number of Jews murdered. When asked how many Jews were killed, 63% of millennials and Gen Z did not know that 6 million Jews were murdered. 
Now you could say, okay, this is maybe they're, they're, they are not particularly knowledgeable. Obviously they're not, right? But I think it gets more disturbing. Um, further down in that survey, um, it says that 11% of US millennial and Gen Z responded and believing that Jews had caused the Holocaust. So this is, you know, going further. And then, you know, you can stack up, you know, the which part is the most troubling in different ways, but then also how much this has now become part again of our of our lives and our normality if um, about half of them answer that they've seen Holocaust denial or distortion posts on social media. In other words, it is everywhere. If half of that generation has seen it, in other words, it, it's not any longer something that exists only on our fringes of society, that there is Holocaust denial or distortion, but it's everywhere. And so, yes, um, we've just started out, you, you, we started talking about Juji, and then um, we talked about the kind of being born into a time that made you learn and appreciate your importance going forward seeing history as something that matters to this, I think it's very, very disturbing. And and uh, sorry to go on with this because, uh, you know, it's, then you have to ask ourselves why. Yeah. So why is that? And then, you know, the, the real troubling part about this is, I said earlier, Zhuzhi started teaching in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So it's fair to say that ever since the 80s, when Zhuzhi started, when it was not quite yet common, at all universities that these days, and there's more Holocaust, there are more Holocaust museums in the country than ever. There are more really popular Holocaust movies out than ever. There's a whole library of books about the Holocaust. There are more Holocaust programs like ours um, around the country. So they know less at a time when there's been far more teaching. So what does it take to change that? What does that mean if it's not there any longer? And um, what does that mean for us, again, if we just talked about two exceptional individuals who who lived under the shadow of, of the World War and of the Holocaust and kind of took that as our inspiration, when we now look or seem to be looking at a generation that is utterly bereft of, of historical knowledge? Exactly. And I think if we, we put this in the context of you know, one of the recent reports by the Anti-Defamation League that once again also shows, you know, the, the reporting of anti-Semitic acts happening in the United States in the last years have surpassed that which have ha- has happened in the past. So we also see this increase um, of anti-Semitism at the same time. So I think that there are many there are many moving parts to this equation, one could say. But unfortunately, I think this just shows to us how how relevant the work that we do still is. You know, in many ways we could say unfortunately, but it also provides for us this kind of difficult position, I think, that we find ourselves in. How do we effectively change the minds of, especially the younger generation who are mostly getting their information through social media? So how do we as individuals have any kind of impact on social media and what is actually available out there? You know, this has been a a huge debate with the ways in which Facebook and Instagram have been used for for this kind of propaganda. And yet the platforms refuse many times to actually take them down. And so it's 
it, it becomes, you know, a very complicated issue, I think. It is very, very complicated. And also just, you know, to, you know, there's also something at the end of that survey that kind of spins it almost in the other direction. And I think connects, um, you know, with what you were just emphasizing that in the end, 64% of all U.S. millennials and Gen Z believe that Holocaust education should be compulsory in school. Yes. In other words, the very generation that overtly don't seem to know a lot yet at the same time are very mindful of there being a need for more Holocaust education. Absolutely. And I think, you know, then it becomes a question maybe that we have to rethink also on our end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's very easy to point at this generation and to say, oh, how yes. could they? Why don't they know? Um, but there's got to be also maybe another way around and say, well, maybe we have to think again about how we teach and yeah. how we how we how we reach out to that community. And and I think, you know, based on 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 our experience in classes now, admittedly at a college level, uh, my sense has always been that the students tend to respond to our classes or me teaching um, more than if instead of me just lecturing, if I make them and turn them into participants. In other words, if they have a voice in deciding and interpreting the evidence, if I bring them into that picture. And I think maybe that's, you know, something that we have to like go at a little bit more that we don't think so much about the Holocaust as being something that has very fixed um, you know, learning content and outcomes, but we have to understand that ever more so these days, you know, on campus and elsewhere, we're dealing actually not with a homogenous group of, of students, but with very diverse students of so many different backgrounds, and we have to allow their voices exactly. to be part of this. And I think when we do, then they will remember far more than if we just turn this into something which um, tries to bestow you know, to deliver knowledge that they need to memorize for the next multiple, uh, you know, choice questions or something like that. Definitely. And I think, you know, this idea of the participatory learner um, is something that we had actually talked about in a previous uh, podcast when you said something that I thought was really poignant, that we cannot take democracy for granted. And I think that in the United States, oftentimes we grow up thinking that democracy is this fixed idea. I mean, that that is the the way in which, you know, going through middle and high school and college, that is very much something that you don't think can ever go away. And if anything, these reports really make me think that we have to do a lot more work than oftentimes we think is necessary um, to even live a normal life, you know, to be responsible citizens. And this goes into becoming aware of the Holocaust, becoming aware of this history, is part of that um, participatory engagement with history, with democracy, with what what is important, right? If we hold our rights to be something dear, we have to be engaged in in these questions. And so, it's I think you're you're really hitting the nail on the head by saying we have to become better participants um, in our own learning, or the students really need to become better participants in their own learnings, and we need to be able to facilitate this. Um, That's it. I think, you know, we have to allow them to become participants. And, you know, I think this, historically, our profession has been built around a, a very clear hierarchy that right. we are the, the the deliverers of knowledge and the uh, the other side. But they cannot work if, if the point of, I mean, this has always been the point, 
if we look at our mission statement, teaching the past, changing the future, the agenda of Holocaust education has never been just knowledge. It has always been about making some impact upon individuals, on on communities and on our societies, but then we have to allow them uh, to to partake in that. And I think that's really, you know, again, one of those things you asked me um, earlier, so the legacy of Zhuzhi and the Ackerman Center. I mean, Zhuzhi succeeded in, in breathtaking ways to make her own individual experience relevant to so many. And I think we gotta have to continue that and realize that on our campus, we have even more now an opportunity. And, and, and you know, I, I remember, you know, for me, you know, having grown up in Germany, Holocaust had one very specific significance. And um, if I want to kind of engage the, the students these days, I have to maybe tell them about that, you know, but since, you know, we are now living in a different place in a different time, I have to allow them to find their own pathways into this. And um, to make it their own in other ways. I mean, you've participated in this in, in numerous ways. Actually, you're one of the big facilitators of this, our translation workshops. Yes. And to me, always, the idea of translating poems into other languages is quite literally the process by which you recognize the other voice. And therefore, what we do there in terms of our practice, our communal kind of coming together when we translate and then when we do it again on Holocaust Remembrance Day is the is the kind of embodiment of this ideal that the other voice speaks now in their own language and not any longer just in my language. Exactly. So I think that that's a really good thing for us to keep in mind, sort of, you know, being able to adapt even the way in which we have historically done things. We have to be able to adapt it either, either it's through the new technologies that are available that we have to learn um, how to be better facilitators of that knowledge and in that process really help others become engaged participants in their own learning. And hopefully that will be a way for us to also carry on the legacy of, you know, the great women's that we have been talking about. Um, That's right. And, so. and I, I think, you know, the, the, the other kind of, you know, unique gift of, of her and many others have been in, that's maybe, you know, a good way to, to finish this is as we're teaching, maybe we also have to become best, better listeners. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you again, Dr. Valente, for um, joining me here today. And uh, I look forward to meeting you here again. Thank you, Dr. Romer. I look forward to seeing you again as well. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the Ackerman Center, please visit utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman. And be sure to follow us on social media to receive notifications of upcoming events throughout the course of this semester. You can find us on facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center and on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. Stay safe and until next time. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.